This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm on the telephone with Mike Lavelle, K6ML, and this is a little like talking to an athlete who just set the world record for the pole vault. In this case, Mike and a couple of his friends set the record for distance at 122 gigahertz. Good afternoon, Mike. Afternoon, Steve. Now, you managed to communicate at 122 gigahertz over uh, 86.2 miles. Is that correct? Yes, with uh, Oliver, KB6BA, and Jim, and 9GIM. And it says here in the story that I had that uh, you were on uh, the top of a mountain, and Mount Vaca, is that correct? Yeah, Mount Vaca. There's a weather radar up there. It's about 2,800 feet. It's on the north end of the San Francisco Bay. And they were down on Mount Omenum uh, on the south end of the bay at about 3,300 feet. Well, I'm glad you pronounced that. There was no way I was going to attempt that. Yeah, it means uh, the place where the hummingbird rests in uh, the Indian (laughs) dialect. (laughs) So you took your equipment up there, and I believe you had said that you were uh, using converted satellite antennas. I mean, satellite TV antennas. Is that right? Yeah, we used uh, just... uh, two-foot satellite TV dishes, uh, like might have fallen off your neighbor's roof, and some chips from silicon radar that um, are designed for 22 and 122 gigahertz as uh, radar sensor chips for, like, factory automation and drones and stuff like that. This raises a good question, because I was going to ask you, how did you manage to generate a sufficient amount of power at 122 gigahertz, let alone receive it? Yeah, well, these chips, they're designed to be short-range sensors, and we kind of twisted them to our purposes by putting them in front of the dish. But they put out about a, a fraction of a milliwatt, just under a half a milliwatt, and they have a, a nice tunable oscillator in them and a low-noise amplifier, about 10 dB noise figure. So you were communicating over this distance at, uh, as you say, fractions of a milliwatt. Is that accurate? Yeah. The other thing, of course, is putting it in front of the dish you know, it makes makes a big difference. What sort of path loss were you experiencing at that distance? Uh, well, the the normal spreading, you know, one over R path loss is 177 dB. But there's another 48 dB or 8S units of atmospheric loss from uh, water vapor and oxygen uh, absorbing the signal. And what mode were you using? Was it uh, CW? Yeah, we used CW. It was very weak. So we treated it kind of like a moon bounce contact. Uh, That's the kind of signal levels we had. Well, let's take a listen. For listeners, uh, you may want to crank up the audio in whatever device you're using, uh, just in case. Here we go. Mike, how long did you uh, carry on this conversation, this QSO? Jim's QSO took about uh, 20 minutes uh, with the repeats and uh, my fairly slow CW sending. Oliver's was a little longer, um, basically getting things established, but uh, 
So between the two, a little over an hour. And were you down converting from 122 uh, gigahertz to, say, an intermediate frequency? And what would that be? Yeah, uh, the chip has a down converter in it, and uh, I brought it out at 2.5 megahertz. So I just listened on a, uh, I think Oliver was listening on a KX3. I was listening on a little QRP SDR rig. Well, that's really remarkable, and uh, you had wonderful weather for it, too, uh, at least from what I could see in the photos. Yeah, that that's actually a key ingredient because the 8S units of atmospheric loss are only on a very, very dry day. So we basically spent about two months watching the weather forecasts, and any time it looked like it was going to be dry, we'd uh, head to the mountains, and uh, we finally got the break we needed. So just like an opening on the lower bands, we were looking for a very dry air duct. Wow. I mean, this is this is extremely impressive, and it's not certainly not something any person could normally do. Well, at, at shorter distances, um, up to about, uh, oh, 25 miles or so, um, it's a lot easier because the atmospheric loss isn't so bad. And there's going to be a bunch of uh, people getting on the band because uh, some VK3s, a VK3 designed a uh, similar uh, radio, and uh, they have a fundraiser project they put together, uh, and about 200, 250 hams have ordered them. Well, that's interesting. I hope we'll see more activity. Uh, we certainly need it up there. Yeah, maybe we'll have pileups. <laughs> So what's your next plan? Uh, are you going to try to go even higher in frequency, or are you going to try to stretch the distance? Uh, both. Uh, I think we want to try for some longer distances. I'm also going to maybe see if I can figure out how to get digital modes on the radio. Long term, uh, there may be some chips for higher frequencies from uh, uh, the same radar company. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Thanks, Steve. Those of you who are familiar with FT-8 are no doubt familiar with WSJTX. That's the software suite in which you find FT-8, right? Well, there are some other modes in that software. In particular, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about MSK-144. Now, this mode is used for a type of amateur communication, and commercial in some cases, called Meteor Scatter. As the Earth moves through space, it is constantly sweeping up what you might call cosmic debris, bits of rock, some of it the size of grains of sand. Now, some of these appear as what we call meteor showers. Some of the famous ones, like the Geminids, the Leonids, and these happen, oh, every couple of months or so. But... This sweeping up of debris, this constant infalling of dust, is happening 24-7. And each one of these particles are entering our atmosphere at hypersonic velocities, thousands of miles per hour, and they immediately incandesce. The air cannot get out of the way fast enough as these things come flying in. And what you get as a result are these trails these ionized trails, plasma trails really, that are extending out behind the meteors as they fly through the air or through the high upper atmosphere. You've probably seen some of these. I saw one a couple of weeks ago on my way home from work. Suddenly I saw a zip and I thought, yeah, that's a meteor that just went zipping through the sky just uh, in front of my automobile pretty much. But again, these visible meteors are reasonably common, but what I'm talking about is even more common. And again, that's this constant infalling 
of grains of dust, particles, and what have you. Now, these ionized trails that these meteors generate can reflect radio waves. And hams have been bouncing their signals off these trails for decades. In fact, way back in the day, they were using high-speed CW to communicate during these very brief bursts of activity. Now, the very small meteors create very small trails behind them. These trails last for, oh, in some cases, milliseconds of time. So if you're going to bounce a signal off that ionized trail, you better do so quickly. And you better do so in such a way that is so robust that it can be received at the other end and understood. And that's where MSK-144 comes into play. This is a digital mode like the other modes in the WSJTX suite except it is tailor-made for this meteor scatter communication. It takes advantage of these very short bursts, these millisecond bursts, and it allows you to quickly communicate, just sending your call sign and grid square, just like FT8 in that regard. Here's what an MSK-144 transmission sounds like. Now, what you're hearing is MSK-144 Essentially sending your call sign, your grid square, CQ, whatever, over and over and over and over for about 30 seconds, give or take. Hopefully, during this time, your signal is going to bounce off one of those ionized trails and it's going to land about a thousand miles away. It has to do this in just a fraction of a second, but that's enough time for MSK-144. Now, I bet you're probably thinking that to take advantage of this kind of activity, you have to have a huge tower, huge antenna. You've got to be pumping a kilowatt and a half on two meters, something like that. Well, sure, there are people that do that. But I'll tell you from my own experience, you can do this on six meters and you can do it with 100 watts and a dipole antenna. I've done it. I've had contacts using MSK-144 out to considerable distances. I mean, it takes patience. You do have to learn the mode. And sometimes you'll call CQ over and over and over and nobody will respond. It doesn't mean that the uh, meteors aren't necessarily present. It just means that no one heard you. Most of the activity on six meters, by the way, is taking place at 50.260 megahertz. Now, granted, if you're doing this during a meteor shower, your odds of Connecting with somebody and being able to complete an exchange are considerably higher. But again, I have to emphasize, this is 24-7. If you're blasting signals out there, your CQs by MSK-144, you will eventually get a response. Patience pays off. I'm speaking with Ed Hare, W1RFI, the ARRL Laboratory Manager here in Newington, Connecticut, and I want to ask you, Ed, about wireless power transfer. I know that Tesla was exploring this an awfully long time ago, but this is a big deal now, correct? Well, actually, yes, it is. And, you know, um, I like to say we live in some pretty exciting times, Steve. You know, we have things like wireless power transfer. We have all sorts of modern technology. But I'm glad you brought up Tesla because, yes, Tesla years back envisioned transferring power wirelessly from some central generation to a very wide area. Well, this is almost like that. Almost. Almost, right, except for it's over a much shorter distance where we can now have devices that we can charge uh, simply by putting them near a power source. Um, 
People love that convenience. Like uh, I do with my, my iPhone. I just sit it on what looks like a hot plate. Yes. And it just starts charging. Magically. But, you know, this is not new. Um, not only did Tesla envision this over great distances, but this short distance wireless power transfer, hams have been using it for years. We call them transformers. That's and what right. you have in a transformer is you have a primary winding that magnetically couples to a secondary winding and transfer power, obviously changing voltages as needed, much like your little wireless yeah. phone charger will. Exactly. And so it's not new. But wireless power transfer has certainly gotten the attention of the amateur community. Um, you know, there's a little bit of question about our favorite subject, RFI, thus my call. Yes. Uh, but there's probably two major types of wireless power chargers, Steve. One of those is the one you described, the little low-powered charger. We've had these for years, too. Electric toothbrushes often would sit in a little holder that would magnetically couple power from, you know, the AC line through a transformer to another transformer called the, the interface to the toothbrush. Uh, now we're doing this with all sorts of devices like phones, iPads, whatever it is people want to charge. Uh, they simply want to set it on a pad, know that it's done, and forget about it. They're also doing this on a grander scale um, where there are now technologies being developed that would know where in a room a device is and have something in the room, detect it, and direct a radio signal right at that device oh. and charge it anytime you're in the room. So there's some pretty interesting things happening. Yes. Um, how well that's going to work, I don't know. I mean, some of this could well be a technologist's dream, but those kinds of things are certainly in the plate. We care for an obvious reason. These all use RF. Oh, and I'll, but before I get too far, sorry to get ahead of myself, there's also the one that is a concern to the amateur radio community, and that is high-powered electric vehicle wireless chargers. We're seeing a lot of, of newer electric vehicles, com vehicles coming along. Yes. Uh, interestingly, often with batteries made by, well, Tesla. <laughs> yes. <laughs> An interesting <laughs> choice of name. <laughs> And right now, you can see, you can go to many a parking lot and see a parking space with a meter and a wire coming out of it that says for electric vehicles only. We're charging them by a wire. Well, apparently, industry doesn't believe people want to connect up wires. They'd rather just be near it. So they are developing a wireless charging system uh, for high-powered uh, electric vehicles that you would simply drive over a plate, align yourself properly, and transfer many kilowatts of power over a short distance from a plate on the ground uh, into your car. How short is this distance? Well, uh, typically, you know, you'd be looking at driving a car over a plate. Obviously, it, it can't be up too high or it would hit the undercarriage of cars. So we're looking at approximately six inches of, of space. Mm. Um, and, you know, some of these higher-powered chargers, Steve, uh, we're talking for some of the commercial ones where they might have an electric bus, potentially 100,000 watts of power. Whoa. Oh, yeah. This is real power. I mean, this, this, yes. you know, and there's questions that I won't explore much because it's not really amateur radio's show, but can the electric power grid handle all of this electric power charging? I mean, you're looking at even at, at vehicles, uh, 10, 20 kW in a house in a garage perhaps or in your garage would be the pad this wireless charging device has to hook to your ac mains to get power and you've just added now twenty thousand watts of capacity 
to the electrical system in your home, multiply that times how many, who knows where that's going to end up. Yes. Uh, fortunately, I think the the expectation is this will build slowly over time, giving the grid an opportunity to modernize. There's also some very interesting talk about potentially being able to tap the batteries in these cars to charge them during off-peak hours, and then if someone's not using them during peak hours, take the power back and put it on the grid. <laughs> kind of like solar power, but without the solar. Yeah, right, so, right. so some very, very interesting things going uh, on with this. Well, why do we care? I mean, why are we having yeah, this conversation? Yeah, what is our concern? Right. Um, they use RF. Now, typically, they're in the 100 kilohertz range. Of course, we have a band in the 100 kilohertz range that we'd yes. like to make more use of. Uh, and these fundamental signals, of course, they don't intentionally radiate. You know, you're trying to transfer as much power as you can. I've seen reports of up to 95% efficiency. Hmm. Um, you know, looked like credible studies to me, although mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having a little trouble envisioning 95% efficiency. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure my transformer is quite that efficient, but I'll take their word for it. Uh, so they don't intentionally radiate, but they do. When you're talking 95% efficiency, either energy is lost as heat, which if you're dealing with a 20,000 watt uh, you know, device yeah. and you are losing 5% of your, of your energy as heat, that's 5 kW of heat. You know, yes. That would be <laughs> – <laughs> uh, so um, you know, th th that's a potential concern. But it's also losing a fair amount of it by radiation. So when you're dealing with that fundamental signal of, say, 100 kilohertz, if it's not in an amateur band, I think the expectation is our equipment should be immune to strong nearby frequency fundamental signals. We expect that of our neighbor's devices. We need to right, expect that of right. ourselves. But the problem is harmonics. Yes. If you have a 100-kilowatt transmitter or a 10-kilowatt transmitter operating at 100 kilohertz, and it has harmonics extending you know, up into the HF, perhaps even into the VHF range, those are going to fall every 100 kilohertz in our amateur bands. And so we want to make sure that as this technology is developed, that the harmonic suppression is sufficient, that if these get deployed uh, ubiquitously, we could see, you know, and somebody in a crowded residential neighborhood with two or three of them in different garages surrounding them. Uh, what about apartment buildings where they could put these into the parking garage with oh, apartments yeah. right over? Yeah. Um, you know, these harmonics potentially could cause interference. That it even gets a little worse because some of these things, to transfer power efficiently, we're talking tuned circuits. You have a 100 kilohertz tuned loop. You have a 100 kilohertz tuned receiver antenna in a car and when they're very close together they can couple quite a bit of that energy efficiently but they need to be tuned exactly well what happens if you're slightly misaligned you've made your tuning off what happens if there's a nearby object affecting the tuning you've made the tuning off so some of these actually move around in frequency kind of hunt for the frequency of optimum transfer and stay there but occasionally hunt because as things warm up, temperature changes will affect resonance. Uh, they're constantly looking for that better frequency. So if they're only hunting over a kilohertz or two range at 100 kilohertz, well, that's not so bad until you get with harmonics. That if you're dealing with a tenth harmonic, now you're sweeping across 20 kilohertz. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we're looking at some of these technologies as they're developed. Uh, I've done some testing with the FCC on some of the wireless Qi chargers. 
And we found that not only did they hunt, but they kept changing bands for whatever reason. <laughs> we weren't sure why. And so, um, you know, there is a potential for interference. Now, having said that, right now, Steve, the the wireless low-power chargers are out there. I can go into Best Buy. I can go into any Certainly. of these, uh, Walmart, all of these places. will sell you a little wireless charger that should work with any compatible phone or device. Uh, they're out there. Fortunately, we have not had any interference complaints involving them. They're relatively low power. Uh, they're only on a little bit. We've taken a look at some of these in the lab. When they're not being used, they do transmit an occasional pulse. But by the time you attenuate that quite a bit, apparently it's lost in the other noise. So although, of course, they could cause interference, we've had interference from all sorts of crazy things. Yes. Uh, in fact, that could be another show, Steve. The interference <laughs> reports received by the lab. Um, you know, we're we're not horribly concerned about those. They meet the FCC Part 15 rules, at least the ones we've looked at, and for the most part, they seem to be all right. But these higher power devices really are a potential concern. Yes, I you would know, think so. You're talking about the amount of suppression you need for harmonics to prevent them from interfering with, say, a, a nearby amateur receiver, an antenna located 30 feet, 10 meters away from a charger, um, you know, those harmonics need to be suppressed very, very well. Amateurs deal with this themselves. I mean, if we have an HF transmitter and we have a neighbor with a nearby antenna-connected television, we may need to add additional filtering to our transmitter in order not to cause interference. We might meet the rules, but we also have to not cause interference. Right. Well, how do you do that with a 100 kW transmitter? The filtering is not as simple as the 1,000 watts <laughs> we can put on our linear. You're talking about the need to have a retrofit, perhaps, of, of a very high-powered transmitter. And, and it is a transmitter, or even over short distances. The uh, filtering would be rather robust, rather large, and, of course, the difficulties of working with a neighbor to get that installed are not – that's not a conversation I'd be looking forward to having with a neighbor. No, I can imagine. Well, I'm glad you're looking into this. I'm glad you're following it. Well, we're not only following it, Steve. Is We're also working with the industry. Um, you know, we are working with one of the major manufacturers, the Society of Automotive Engineers. We've been to one of their labs witnessing and participating in some of their testing. Uh, honestly, we saw some things that, that, you know, the amateurs there really believed should be improved. But, you know, we do have those doors open at the ground floor as that high-powered technology is being developed. So um, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, we we... We faced a bigger challenge with broadband over power line and, oh, yeah. and came out of it okay in the <laughs> long run. Uh, and so this is another potential problem that could be big if it gets ubiquitously deployed. So we need to make sure that as this technology is developed, as standards are developed, that uh, they're developed with the full input of amateur radio, and we positioned ourselves to do that. Excellent. Thank you, Ed. Thank you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.